hold a high So after I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I'll respond, thanks be to God. Um, as I read through this, just remember the prayer that Travis led us through earlier. Um, so let us hear this morning from the psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have uh, broke, uh, let the boi- bones <laughs> that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore in me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltless, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered in your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you for this passage. Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you that... um, we learn from it, we learn about your love for us, and, um, and you teach us how to love other people with it. I pray for Andrew as he comes up. Um, thank you for this week and the time that he's put in preparing this sermon, and I just pray that you would speak through him and that we would have ears to hear what you have to say to us through him. Amen. Good morning. I was just turning on the mic. Uh, that's what I was doing in my back pocket, just in case you're wondering. Uh, good to see you all. Um, if I haven't met you, there's a few I haven't met. Uh, my name is Andrew. I lead the team here in Village South. I'd love to meet you. Um, so I'll be around afterwards if you want to say hello. That'd be great. Um, as Jess mentioned, that d- during the summer we've been working our way through not all of the Psalms, but just uh, some of the Psalms. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of the Book of Psalms. You can dip into these prayers, these songs. Uh, and, and use them uh, for our worship. We can sing and, and pray these things as well. So we've been unpacking some of them. Uh, psalm 51 is, maybe you've come across this psalm before. If, if you've been around church a bit or you've been a Christian for a while, you've maybe re- read this. It's a pretty familiar one. Um, if you haven't heard of it before, that's totally fine. We're going to unpack it. But unlike some of the psalms in the Bible, um, we know exactly what was going on behind the scenes in this one. Um, we know exactly why this was written and what was going on, and it starts with a story. 
And the story goes like this. There were once two men who lived in the same city. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man, he had huge flocks of sheep and herds of cattle. These were the markers of real wealth in those days. And the poor man, he was down and out. He didn't have huge flocks of sheep or herds of cattle. He didn't have a big bank account. Um, He didn't have a property portfolio. He had absolutely nothing. No, the poor man had nothing except this one little lamb. And he had bought this lamb with with, with with his own meager savings. And he loved the lamb, and he had raised it himself by hand. It grew up with him and his children, just like a member of the family. It ate the food off his plate. It drank from his own cup. It even slept at the foot of his bed like we might do with a puppy. And this little lamb was like a daughter to him. And it happened that one day a traveler dropped in on the rich man, passing through the city. And the, man, and, and the, the traveler was dusty, and he was hot, and he was weary from, from traveling by foot in the hot Middle Eastern sun. Now, the rich man was far too stingy to take an animal from his own herds or, 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 or a calf from his own hot, uh, herd to make a meal for his visitor. He didn't even want to spare one lamb for his guest. So instead, he took the poor man's lamb, killed it, and prepared a meal to set before the traveler. Now, this story is actually a parable. It's a parable that the prophet Nathan told to David, who was king of Israel. And of course, just like we all do when we hear that story, we were outraged at the injustice of it. In fact, David was so outraged by this rich man's actions, he had all these sheep, it wouldn't have cost him anything to kill one and prepare a, a meal for the traveler. Instead, he, he takes this poor man's beloved little lamb and kills it. David's so outraged by this unfairness that he wants to go and, and find this rich man and execute him. And that would have been his right as the king. But the irony is that the injustice in the parable is nothing compared to what David himself had done. You see, behind the scenes, behind the scenes of the story that's behind the scenes is a real situation. David, the king of Israel, had sent his army into battle. But he had chosen to stay at home in the luxury and comfort and safety of his own palace. And the army was led by his friend Uriah. And one day, while Uriah is out fighting David's war, David saw Uriah's wife bathing. And instead of averting his eyes or, or, or going back inside or, 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 or going away from it, he sends for, for, for Uriah's wife, and he has her brought to him, and he commits adultery with her, and she got pregnant. So then, David tries to cover it up. What does he do? Well, he says, I, I, need to, I need to get Uriah back so that he can, he can uh, be with his wife, and, and, and then he'll think that it's his baby. And so David uh, sends for Uriah, and Uriah comes back. But Uriah is so loyal. He's an upright, righteous man, and he's so loyal to his comrades. He says, no, 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 I need to get back to the front line. I need to go back to my comrades in, in battle. And so David writes a letter and seals it up and sends it with Uriah to another commander of the army. And and in the letter, it has instructions to put Uriah on the front line, and then the army will fall back, and Uriah will be killed in the battle. So to put it simply and to put it bluntly, David, the king of Israel, committed adultery with his friend's wife, and then had his friend killed to 
cover it up. And almost a year later then, Nathan, sent by God, comes to David with this parable to confront him about what he's done. And David's so struck to the heart that he cries out, Lord, I have sinned against the Lord. And maybe you haven't killed anyone. If you have, you should probably confess that to someone. Um, that's a dark joke. Uh, maybe you don't think you're as bad as David. But I wonder what we do with our guilt. What do we do with, with all the bad things that we do? And how, how do we think that we're going to change? You see, this psalm isn't just about David getting something off his chest. He's not, he's not just writing this stuff to get some kind of relief. This psalm is written for us too. This psalm is given to us to show us our situation before God. This psalm, uh, this psalm is about David, as he says in verse 13, teaching sinners God's ways. He wants to show others how to return to God in repentance. This psalm isn't just about David's own sin. It's given to us by God to show us our own need for repentance. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard about, of this word, whataboutery. Whataboutery? This, we love a bit of whataboutery in Northern Ireland. You see this on the, on the news. If you watch any politics in Northern Ireland all the time, uh, they, they, they talk about one political party say, well, what about that party over there? They haven't done this. They're not holding up their end of the bargain. And the other party will say, well, what about those guys over there? What about them? What about them? And it's horrible to watch, and it's frustrating, and it's why things are a mess. But actually, we all love a bit of whataboutery, don't we? Especially when it comes to examining our own hearts. We go, what about her? Have you seen the state of her life? I'm not as bad as her. Or what about him? Do you know what he did? Do you know all the things he's done? Or especially when we look at David. He was an adulterer, a murderer. Uh, the things he did would be, would be the kind of uh, true crime podcast I would listen to. Surely you're not saying that I'm as bad as he is. And yet, from this man who knows not only the depth of his own sin, but he knows the heart of God, that, that he knows the depth of God's covenant love, comes this prayer song that teaches us not just to repent, but our need of repentance. You see, uh, repentance is, is not just part of the Christian life. Repentance is completely fundamental to, to being a Christian. And none of us like to repent, do we? We don't. I suppose it's just in our human nature, but we hate saying sorry. Nobody had to teach my kids to hate saying sorry. But sometimes when they hurt each other or do something wrong, it's like pulling teeth trying to get them to apologize. And even if they do say the words, it's like this, sorry. Like, you, you, they don't mean it. I know they don't mean it. There's something in us that hates repentance. But repentance is at the very heart of the gospel. Repentance and grace go hand in hand. You see, when we repent, we receive God's grace, don't we? There can be no Christianity without repentance. And we don't like to think about this, do we? We like to, to, to think of sinners being the murderers and the adulterers and the abusers and the rapists and the criminals and the dictators. But the truth is, the Bible tells us that we have all sinned, that we've all turned away from God. The Bible even goes so far as to say that there is no one who is good. No, not, not, not even one. We much prefer to talk about God's love and His grace, don't we? But actually, there can be no grace if there is no sin. God's love is so amazing because our sin is so terrible. You see, Jesus didn't come to teach us how to clean ourselves up or, or work our way up to heaven. He came into the world to save sinners. 
In fact, all the way through the Gospels, uh, sinners are the only types of people that Jesus forgives, right? He says this. He says, I haven't, a doctor doesn't go to, to, to well people. A doctor goes to sick people. Jesus only redeems those who recognize their own sinfulness. In fact, Jesus' first words in his public ministry were, repent and believe the gospel. And so repentance is, is at the heart of the gospel. And repentance isn't just turning away from your sin. It's actually turning towards God. It's not just feeling sorry. It's actually being convicted, becoming inwardly humbled and outwardly changed. So it's this inward thing that happens inside you that then changes what happens on the outside. It's a directional change in your life from sin to God. And the amazing thing is that it's only when we see the depth of our sin that we can see the height of His grace. Now, maybe you're thinking this is all very heavy and quite a troubling thing to talk about in a nice sunny summer morning. But in order for us to see the amazingness of God's grace, we have to see the depth of our sin, right? Uh, There's this Puritan pastor called Richard Sibbs in the 1600s, and he wrote maybe the best sentence ever written in in the English language. He says, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. Isn't that amazing? There's more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. And if you go away from here this morning seeing only your sin and not his grace, then I haven't done my job right. And this Psalm of David, this prayer of repentance unfolds like a journey of repentance from from one step to the next. And the first step in that journey is that repentance recognizes that sin is against God. Repentance recognizes sin is against God. We see this in verses 1 to 4. I'm just going to read them again. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions. Transgressions is just like the bad stuff he's done. He knows the bad stuff he's done. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So here's David, right? He's facing up to what he's done. Adultery, murder, conspiracy, cover-up. But David's confession to God is as surprising, I think, as it is intense, right? He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Why does he say this? How can he say this when he has cheated on this man and killed his, had him killed? How, he's definitely hurt people, so why does he say that he's only sinned against God? Well, I want to point out that I don't think it's because he, he doesn't recognize that he's hurt people. I think he clearly recognizes this. He even later on says in verse 14 that he, he is blood guilty, right? That, that's, a, that's an old way of saying he's confessing to bodily harm. He's confessing to murder. I think he clearly recognizes that he has sinned against people. So why does he confess that he has sinned only against God? Well, you see, David realizes that we all, just like we all need to, that all sin is against God. You see, sin is a bit like treason, Right. If you, if you go out tomorrow and, and try to overthrow your own country, right, you're, you're probably going to hurt a lot of people on the way. You're probably going to have to kill some people. You're probably going to have to maybe um, hurt some people. You're going to have to cause some damage to, to property and buildings and all that kind of stuff. But when you're caught, 
Because if I was trying to overthrow a country, I definitely would be caught. When you're caught, you will be tried for treason. Why? Because even though you've hurt all these people along the way and caused all this damage to all this property or whatever it may be, you have betrayed the country that you were raised in. You have gone against the values of your own country. You have, uh, you have betrayed the country that provided you with resources and a home and a job and an education and, and health care or whatever it may be. So in the same way, every sin is like treason against God. Sin is, is overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. And, and it's not just things like adultery and murder that separate us from God. Every sin is treason against our Creator. Let me give you another analogy. Uh, one of the rules in our family is that we are kind to each other and protect each other, okay? This is, this is one of the things we talk about with our kids a lot, right? So with Finley, my poor kids, they get used a lot <laughs> in my sermons. <laughs> they might not like that when they get older, but they're not here, so it's fine. Um, if Finley hits his sister, right, not only has he hurt his sister, he has broken the rules of our family. He's gone against the values that we have put in, in place to make our family flourish and thrive. One of the values of, of our little, uh, you, you know, our little unit, our little family is that, that we are kind to each other and we protect each other, right? He's actually gone against that when he harms his sister. So he doesn't just have to apologize to his sister, he has to apologize to us too. He has to recognize that there's a, a higher standard than just not hurting each other. You've actually broken the rules. In the same way, when we sin against others, we are ultimately sinning against God. So we need to see that sin is, is, is always first against God. Every sin you've ever committed is because you've loved something else more than God. That's why David says that his sin is against God alone. He says, God, you're right to judge me. Your verdict is correct. And notice what he's saying. He's saying that he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He committed murder against Uriah. But the first sin of adultery he committed was against God. He didn't go from zero to murder. <laughs> right? It never happens that way. We sin step by step, smaller to greater, and the first step is always cheating on God. Think about it. What if David, right, when he saw Bathsheba bathing, if he had repented and said, God, I'm sorry, like I'm looking at this woman who's not my wife. She's someone else's wife. I'm really sorry. Uh, cleanse my heart. What if he had written this prayer then? How different things would have been. What if he had repented of his self-interest before he sent the army to war and stayed safely at home himself? See, his, his sin was first of all in his heart against God. And this is the situation that we all find ourselves in, isn't it? Our, our, every time that we sin, our sin is always first and foremost in our hearts against God. Every sin of our entire lives is against the holy God. So what are we to do? Because this sounds pretty bleak. What do you do when you're sinning against the holy God? Well, notice the grace that is woven into this psalm right from the very beginning. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. See, David recognizes what he's done. 
And he pleads to God for mercy on the basis of God's own promises. He says, Lord, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. This phrase, steadfast love, in the Old Testament, it literally means unfailing love, unbreakable love. And it's talking about a promise that God made to his people. It's this covenant promise that God made to his people to never leave them or never forsake them. You will be my people and I will be your God. And I will always love you. And when God makes this covenant, it, covenant, it can't ever be broken. God's love never fails. And even when we do the worst things imaginable, think the worst things imaginable, say the worst things imaginable, put ourselves first all the time above our friends and neighbors and loved ones. When we're selfish, when we're racist, when we're, uh, we have these thoughts about people, when we reject God, we know that we can just throw ourselves on God's mercy. Why? Because he's promised that his love will never fail. And this, and this kind of confession, this kind of repentance comes out of relationship with God, right? We, if you're a Christian this morning, you're in a covenant relationship with God, right? And a covenant relationship works like this. There are promises made and then things done to back up those promises. So God says, to you, if you're a Christian, I promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. And here's what I've done to prove this. I've given Jesus to die for you. See how that works? And so through the death of Jesus, we are united with God and that union can't ever be broken. And when we sin, our confession comes out of that covenant relationship. You see, as God's people, confession isn't an attempt to try and gain a relationship with God. Rather, confession arises out of our relationship with God. See how that works? It's because we are united with Jesus that we confess our sin, sure in the knowledge that he will never leave us or forsake us. See how, see how God's grace is, is revealed only when we repent? You see that? There's more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. And we experience this grace upon grace upon grace when we recognize our sin and throw ourselves on his mercy. Yes, repentance recognizes that our sin is against God. But more than that, repentance reveals that his grace is toward us. Isn't that amazing? That's the first step of this repentance journey that David's on. He recognizes that his sin is against God. But the second step in his journey is that repentance remembers our sinful nature. Repentance remembers our sinful nature. We see this in verses 5 to 9. I'm going to read it just so it's fresh in our minds again. He goes on to say, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. That's an old way of making yourself spiritually clean, right? And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities, all my wrongdoing. So here David moves on from not just recognizing that his sinful actions, but also that he is sinful in his very nature, right? You see, even though David has been confronted with these horrible things that he's done, and he has done some pretty horrible things, he, he sees that these actions arise out of who he is in his very being. He says, actually, there's never been a time when I wasn't sinful. 
And this isn't him being melodramatic, you know. It's not like him saying, I am so sorry. It's not that like I do to my wife. Oh, I'm really sorry, right? This is David actually facing up to who he actually is. No, I've actually always been sinful. There never has been a time when I wasn't sinful. Now, this isn't saying that, that a wee baby will do horrible things. But it is saying that we are all born with a sinful nature. And that left unchecked, that sinful nature will always lead to sinful actions. This is, this is what we call total depravity. Now, that sounds really bad, and it is, but it doesn't mean that human beings aren't capable of good things like kindness and courage and goodness and, and charity and all these different things. It, it, we are still made in the image of God, but it does mean that given the choice to do God's will or our own will, we will always naturally choose to do our own thing. And this might sound shocking to you or even unfair, but we don't have to look very far to see that it's true. Nobody has to teach a toddler how to be naughty, right? Apart from mama and dada, usually the first word a kid learns is no, right? No. Kids love to disobey and push the boundaries. And, and, and it's because sinful nature is in all of us. And you've probably felt this in, your to, in yourself too, if you're honest with yourself. Like, if you're a Christian, like, do you ever keep messing up in the same way over and over and over again? And maybe you have this certain thing that you do or a certain behavior that you have, and, and every time you do it, you re, you're full, full of guilt and regret, and, and maybe even you repent, but before you know it, you've done it again. I do this all the time, stuck in a circle of sin, like it's so ingrained into me that no matter how hard I try, I just can't get rid of it. This is our sinful nature. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, here's how God's amazing grace is revealed to us when we remember our sinful nature. I'm taking a risk because I left this water here last Sunday, so I'm taking a risk. I forgot to get some more today, but it tastes dusty, but it's fine. Here's how, here's how God's amazing grace is revealed to us when we remember our sinful nature. See, David remembers his sinful nature when he's faced with his sinful actions. And he pleads with God, God, can you please clean me? Can you please cleanse me? He says, purge me, Lord. Wash me. And in repentance, when we remember our sinful nature and just confess that to God, God answers our prayer to be cleansed. Lord, I know that I'm sinful. It's like I just can't help it. God answers that prayer to be cleansed. And there's a wonderful picture of this. Uh, I, I feel like I keep talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, but I read them during the, remember the COVID years uh, with Finley. Uh, and in, the, in one of those books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a, a wee boy called Eustace. He's just a horrible wee fella, and he gets kind of dragged into the adventures with, their, with the other kid, with, with Lucy, and they're on this ship. And anyway, uh, Eustace is selfish. He's always looking out for himself. He's nasty to other people. He's dishonest. Um, he's just out for himself. He hates everything. He's grumbling, and he loves treasure. He's out for himself. And so he finds uh, this gold bracelet, this gold band, and he puts it on his arm, and he falls asleep with it on. And as he sleeps, he transforms into a dragon. It's kind of, he becomes like an outward manifestation of what's really going on in his heart. And then, of course, all the other, his companions don't recognize that it's him, and, and so they're terrified, and they drive this horrible dragon away. Eustace is left alone. He's not able to communicate with them 
And in this moment of loneliness, he starts to cry. And he realizes that he wants rid of it. He, he wants rid of the, the dragonness. And so Aslan, who's the lion, the Jesus figure, he comes. And he offers to help. He says, I want to take this dragon skin off you. And Eustace, on his own, he tries three times to, to get rid of it. He, he's trying to scrape off this dragon skin, but no matter how hard he tries, he just can't do it. And so finally, in desperation, Eustace lets Aslan help him. And Aslan begins to tear into the dragon scales with, it, with his claws. And this is how the story goes. Eustace says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that very much, for I was tender underneath, now that I'd, had no, now that I'd no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. See, to, re to, to repent is to be de-dragoned, to be de-sinned. In repentance, we're, we're not asking God to do anything he doesn't want to do. Aslan wasn't unwilling to clean Eustace. It was Eustace who tried to do it on his own. Uh, God stands ready to forgive, but we're the ones who refuse and try to do it ourselves. We try to take the stuff off ourselves. But in repentance, we're asking God simply to do all that he has promised to do for us in his love. And when God washes us in his grace, we become more pure than snow. He blots out our iniquities, it says. And literally, they're deleted from the record book. See, repentance might seem hard, but repentance itself is a grace. When David repented, God came as unexpectedly to him as David came to Bathsheba. Both encounters had serious consequences, but, but whereas David's actions led to death, God's actions led to life and freedom. That's, that's how God works. And it's not always painless. Removing dragon skin is painful. David even says in verse 8 that, it, that it's God who broke his bones. He says, let the bones that you have broken. Sometimes God breaks our bones in repentance. But notice what happens. When we repent, God's grace rushes in and the broken bones don't just heal, they rejoice. Listen, maybe you feel like you can't ever change. Maybe there's that one thing that's like that gold ring around your arm that just seems ingrained into you and it's painful and you just want to get rid of it. Maybe it's this one thing that you keep going over and over and over and over again. Well, it's time to just stop trying to do it yourself. It's time to just confess it to God. God, I am sinful in my nature, just like David was. Cleanse me, heal me, make me new. Just repent and let his grace flood in. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus.
That's the second step of this repentance journey. The third step then is that repentance realizes our need for renewal. That's a lot of ours. <laughs> repentance realizes our need for renewal. Verses 10 to 13 say, create in me a clean heart, O God. He's, he's, he's asking God to clean him. Uh, o God, and a re re a renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You see, you see what's going on here? The journey of repentance has led David from not just uh, recognizing that his sin is against God and then uh, as he examines his heart, he sees that his nature is sinful. But then when faced with not just his actions against God, but then his sinful nature, he realized that he needs a new nature, right? He needs renewal. The words he uses are things like create, renew, restore. This Hebrew word that he says, renew, in verse 10, renew a right spirit within me. It literally means to renovate, right? Um, me and Haley love watching Grand Designs. I don't know if you like watch, I love Grand Designs TV show. You know what I'm talking about, right? Kevin McLeod. Um, anyway, it's, it's good. It's a good show. We were watching one this week, and this couple had bought an old mill in Cornwall. And um, they were, whenever they got in, they wanted to renovate it and turn it into a house and, and so they could kind of protect the building and stuff. But whenever they got in, they realized that it wasn't as simple as they first thought. It wasn't just a matter of plastering the walls and, you know, putting, you know painting the place. The building was rotten to its very core. The, the, the mortar between the stones was crumbling. The, all the wood joists and stuff like that were all rotten. It, it needed a complete renewal, a complete renovation. It was completely gutted to being a shell. And it's the same with our sinful hearts. We need complete renovation. Now, what we try to do is we try to paper over the cracks in the wall. Or, or we maybe even can do a bit of replastering if, if we're really good. But listen, a house with, with paper over cracks in the walls is never going to be a suitable house, a suitable home for the God of all creation. If he's going to come and dwell in our hearts, he needs complete renewal and renovation. And in Jesus, this is what we get. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, if you're a Christian, that's you, you are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see, it's through God, it's from God who makes us new, not us. All we can do is maybe do a bit of painting. When David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, this word in the original language, it's, it's actually a really strong word, and it, it means one thing. It means something that only God can do right? David understands that he can do absolutely nothing to make himself new. It's only God that can make him new. All we can do is stick some paint up and maybe change the odd light bulb, something like that. But if we want real change, if we want lasting change, if we want to be made new, to have complete heart renovation, then we have to let God do it. Just like Eustace, he, couldn't, he tried to take the scales off, but he wasn't going deep enough. He had to let Aslan come in and, 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 and tear it off him, make him new. I, I, I do think that creating me a clean heart 
This should be one of our most frequent prayers as Christians. Certainly it needs to be mine. Because when a person is made new in Jesus, repentance becomes part of our new selves, right? Repentance is not something that we graduate out of. It's not like we, we grow in maturity and then reach that some kind of level of goodness that we, we can stop repenting. That we, Well, I've done my repentance. I don't need to do that anymore. Um, someone, I can't remember who came up with this. I've kind of made it my own, but it's called the, the circle of repentance. And I'll explain what it is. If it's on, put it on the screen there, please, Stuart. That's three circles. It's a bit like James, the James Bond thing when I see it now. But um, the circle, of mat- if, if you look at the circle, one of the circles, the small one, that's our maturity in Jesus, okay? Like our relationship with God. Now, as we mat- and, and the green border around the outside is, is, is our repentance. So what happens as the circle gets bigger? As we grow in maturity in Jesus, so does the border. So does the, the, our repentance needs to grow. See, as we grow in Jesus, we don't graduate out of our need for grace. We actually grow in our dependence on his grace. As our knowledge and experience of God grows, so does our need for repentance you know, I don't even think that when we get to heaven someday that we're going to stop repenting. I think we're going to just be, keep discovering more and more of our need for His grace. We're going to be like, do you realize we're only here because of His grace? We're going to say that to each other all the time. As we get to know Jesus more, we realize that He becomes bigger and, and then we see His grace is bigger and, and we, need, we see our, our, our need for His grace even more clearly and so we will be constantly repenting. This is why in verse 13, David can begin to teach others to repent and turn to God. With renewed hearts, we are led deeper and deeper into a repentant life. And as, as repentant new creations, we lead others in repentance and lead each other in repentance. It's through repentance that we become experts in mercy and grace. This is why... The most mature Christians are the ones who are most repentant. They're the ones who have experienced God's grace and mercy more than others. And it's also why one of our core values as a church family is spiritual honesty and authenticity. That's one of our 10 core values. We want our church family to be a place where it's safe to confess even the worst things to each other because we're all sinners saved by grace. We can't pretend to be better than anyone else. There's no sin so bad that that we can't openly confess it to each other because when it comes down to it, we're all just relying on the same grace, right? That's all we have. We're just all saying, yep, me too. Thank you for Jesus. You don't have to have it all together to be part of our church because the truth is that none of us have it all together. Only Jesus does and we're all just relying on him. This is why I... This is one of the reasons that I love Jesus so much. I don't have to have it all together. Because you know, most of you who know me know that I really don't have it all together. And, and, and furthermore, this is how the church is built up. David goes on to talk about this in verse 18. He says, uh, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. We, we can talk about Zion and Jerusalem. For him, that it was Zion and Jerusalem. For us, we know now after Jesus, he's talking about the church. It's through repentant hearts that the walls of Jerusalem, i.e. the church, are built up. 
And our church will become stronger if we have this culture of confession and repentance and leading each other to just simply rely on God's goodness and His grace. That's all we have. That's all any of us have. Repentance realizes our need for renewal and turns to God for that saving work and then continually walks in that renewal by constantly relying on His grace over and over and over and over and over again. And so we've seen that repentance recognizes that our sin is against God. We've seen that repentance remembers our sinful nature and that it realizes our need for renewal. The final step in in David's uh, repentance journey then is that in repentance, David is released to worship in brokenness. Repentance releases us to worship in our brokenness. I'll just read the last few verses here. We're starting at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. There's something here that has happened. He has gone from recognizing his sin is against God to seeing his sinful nature, to be made a new creation. And when that happens... His lips are opened, right? His mouth is opened to praise God. It's, it, it's, it's like before repentance, he can't praise God. But when he repents, God's grace comes rushing in and suddenly he is free and able to sing praise to God because of God's goodness and mercy and grace. Tim Keller, uh, who some of you might be familiar with, he's a, he's a pastor in New York and he was writing about these verses. He calls this the eloquence of brokenness. Isn't that a lovely phrase? The eloquence of brokenness. I love this. You see, what's happened here, because he goes, you don't delight in sacrifices, but then actually at the end he says, you will delight in right sacrifices. Because if we're trying to fix ourselves up, to make ourselves clean, wallpapering over the cracks, tear off our own dragon skin, all the analogies we've done this morning, then our worship isn't true. It's like offering sacrifices without even considering what they mean. But... When we repent and when we receive God's grace, we can worship in our brokenness. This is the eloquence of brokenness. A heart that is full of praise because we, we not only know, but we also have experienced God's, the, the, the depth of God's grace. Simply say, Lord, I am such a sinner, but you are such a savior. This is amazing. A broken and contrite heart is the posture of a Christian. Now, it might sound counterintuitive. It might even sound scary to us until we realize that the one before whom we are broken is the one who was broken for us. See, when we repent, we're not, we're not jumping off a diving board into a pit of despair. That's not what repentance says. When we repent to a God who is not just a judge and just, but a God who loves us, what we're actually doing is we're falling into an ocean of His grace. 
This summer, um, up in the North Coast, we were, we have been, and we still are, I guess, teaching our kids how to just float in the sea, you know? Because um, you, you know what it's like, if you've ever gone swimming in the sea, you'll know that the more against the waves, that the more exhausted you become. I was in the sea on, I think, Wednesday past, and, and, and the current was so strong, I was swimming as hard as I could, and I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> I'm not a very fit swimmer, but there you go, but it's like that. The more you struggle on the waves, the more exhausted you become. But if you simply lie back and float, right, you realize that the water holds you up. And repentance is like this. When we stop struggling and kicking and fighting and simply lie back and realize that God's ocean of grace holds us up. Ourselves, we're, we're fighting and kicking and, and struggling. We're trying to be better or we're even trying to run away from God. God says, child, just stop. Just admit. Just say, I'm a sinner. Just lie back and realize that my grace holds you up. Grace has you. And then we praise. Then, then, then our lips are opened. You see, true worship isn't the song of somebody who thinks they have it all together. True worship comes from a heart that has been broken in repentance. Repentance knows the goodness of God's grace. You know what true worship sounds like? True worship sounds like, I am such a sinner, but you are such a savior. That's what a broken and contrite heart sounds like. And here's what I want to finish with. You see, there's a part of the story at the beginning that I left out. Um, I'll just have a drink of my dodgy water before I... Might not see you next Sunday, might be sick. Immediately, uh, immediately after uh, David says, I have sinned against the Lord, the prophet Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin, right? Now, this is a problem. It's a problem because if God is, 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 is complete justice, then, then what kind of God puts away murder and adultery? What, what kind of God does that? Surely a righteous God would, 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 wouldn't put that sin away without penalty. How can, a perfect, how can a perfectly just God not make David pay for his sin? How can a perfectly just God not make us pay for our sin for that matter? Well, here's how Jesus fulfills this psalm. You see, Jesus was perfect in his life. He didn't look at a woman and see something he could take. He looked at a woman and saw a person in need of his grace. We see this especially in John chapter 4. He meets this woman at the well. She was a woman who had been married five times. She was living with a woman who wasn't her husband. Jesus could have been like David and taken advantage of her. No problem. But instead, Jesus offers her his grace and forgiveness. Jesus didn't go give in to his desires, but instead on the wrath of God that we deserve. God puts away our sin because he laid them on Jesus on the cross. Jesus takes on our sin. And so justice is done, and it's done at the expense of Jesus for our benefit. Jesus was sacrificial in his death. He didn't send his friends out to the front of the army to fight and die against their enemies. Jesus went to the front line on his own, on our behalf to face our enemy so that he would die, so we wouldn't have to. This means that when we accept him, when we say, Jesus, you've done this for me, 
those of us who are in Jesus, we can pray this psalm in Jesus because of Jesus, knowing that we are forgiven. This is the magnitude of his grace. We can confess, like David, that we've sinned against God, but in Jesus, God has blotted out our transgressions. God has cleansed us from our sin. God has made us whiter than snow. God has made us a new creation. Jesus' death and resurrection is the proof of God's covenant promise to us that he will never leave us. Fast, unfailing, unbreakable, unchanging, unending love. And so when we recognize our sin and remember our sinful nature, we can just confidently repent. And you're going to have to do it every day. If you're like me, you're going to have to do it every hour of every day. That's probably all optimistic. Probably should be doing it every minute of every day. But we can confidently repent again and again and realize that our sin has been paid for. And then just like verse 12 says, the joy of God's salvation will be restored to us. So, before I come to pray, come to worship again. I just, and as the band come up, I just want to invite us all to take a second, just where you are in the quietness of your own heart. And um, I just want invite, to invite us all to just repent again. Uh, I have to be honest and confess, like during the week, um, as I was reading this psalm and, and, and preparing for today, I had to do some serious repenting. Um, but it was so good. And you know what? Just right now, in the quietness of your heart, maybe you want to close your eyes. We're going to be... Um, you can just remember that you can fall back into the ocean of His grace. and Find that His grace just holds you up. Maybe there's one thing that you need to repent of. Uh, maybe you need to remember your sinful nature. But whatever it is, you can just simply, in the quietness of your own heart, just say, I am such a sinner, but Lord, you are such a saviour saved by his grace. Come Holy Spirit, let's be quiet for a few minutes.